Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, continuing to make our way through this first part of Book 5 of the Psalter. If you would, please rise as we honor the public reading of God's Holy Word. Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them, are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, for he is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Go before the Lord once again in prayer. O Father, as the psalmist has said, so, Lord, we pray that you would get glory for yourself and all that you do for your people. And, Lord, that you would honor your name as you rule and defend your people who trust in you, the living God, rather than trusting in the dead idols who can do nothing for those who trust in them. Lord, show yourself to be mighty the God who is the true living God who raised up again from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who blesses his people. Lord, help us to see these things that we might not be uh, tempted to follow the ways of the world, but that we might stand firm on the word of God which has been given to us, following the God who is true in everything. We do ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, there is in this country, uh, I think in some ways, a a growing militancy against Christianity from certain groups. We don't have the kind of outright persecution that other countries face, but yet there there is and there has always been uh, many people who oppose the gospel, uh, those who uh, see uh, true Christianity and the gospel as an obstacle for doing the kinds of things that they 
uh, want to do. And this, of course, continues even down to this day. Uh, my wife and I are, are reading the account of, uh, of First OPC and all the struggles that they had uh, in the 80s with uh, the homosexual movement, how there was just a, a very strong militancy against anything that was Christian at that time. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, that militancy has grown. In some ways, maybe it's not as outright in, um, in our area uh, as it was then, but yet nationwide, these things have in fact grown. And there will always be uh, many groups who will always oppose uh, true Christians. There will always be a, a, uh, a number of, of the ungodly who will see all that Christians stand for as being completely contrary to uh, the things that they are trying to do in this life. And one of the things that's very common with these kinds of groups is um, they will often argue that they are in the right, that Christianity teaches a morality that is wrong and is perverse, and they also will deny the claims of the scriptures with regard to who God is. And this is exactly what we see in this particular uh, text here. The Gentiles are asking, where is your God? Where is your God? We can't see him. He must not be there. We are opposing you, and we seem to be winning. Your God must not be there at all. And here the psalmist gives the great answer, and it sets up this great discussion of the two kinds of religions that there are. There is, there is the religion of the dead idols, and there is the religion of the living God. And the answer that the, that the psalmist gives is, our God is in the heavens. The reason you can't see him is he's, is because he is the invisible, transcendent, almighty God. He is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And this psalm is really a, um, a juxtaposition of these two ways of thinking. On the one hand, there is idols, the work of men's hands, and those who serve them. And the psalmist says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. On the other hand, there is the God who does not need to be made, but who rather makes all things, and who, uh, in making all things, blesses his people and all of those who trust in him. This is uh, the great antithesis that uh, is being spoken of in this particular psalm. Now, you remember uh, in the context, we are continuing to make our way through this first section of book five of the Psalter. This is now the third psalm in what's called the Egyptian Hillel. Remember that Psalms 113 through Psalms 118, uh, psalms that deal particularly with uh, the Exodus and the way in which God saved his people in that way, ultimately uh, pointing forward, as we saw last week, and we'll see again in a number of cases, ultimately pointing forward to the salvation that would come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is actually something that we saw in the Exodus as well, that one of the things that was a, a, a primary um, reason for the plagues was that it showed God's great victory over all the dead idols of Egypt, that all the gods that they worshipped were nothing as compared to God. They worshipped gods related to the Nile, and so God turns the Nile into blood. They worship the sun, and God turns the sun into darkness. And so this great antithesis that we saw even going all the way back to the days of Moses has continued and will continue all the way up until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here the psalmist is calling upon you to trust in God. Even if it appears like the world is winning, even though it appears that the world is raging against you and it appears that they have the upper hand, he is calling upon you to trust in God because their idols are dead and they lead only to death. But our God, no matter what it looks like, is the living God, and all of those 
who trust in him will live. This is the great theme of the psalm, life versus death. And so we'll look at this passage just under two basic headings, uh, the dead world and its dead gods in verses one to eight, and then uh, the living God and his blessed people, people who are blessed with life in verses nine to 18. Again, contrasting the ideas of life and death itself. So if we look again uh, at verses 1 to 8, particularly as we start at verses 1 to 3, verses 1 to 3 are really the the setting of the psalm, where the psalmist uh, sets up what he's going to do in the rest of the psalm. And we see here there are a number of things that happen, particularly in verse 2, we get a glimpse as to the circumstances of the psalm. Why is it that the psalmist is saying uh, these kinds uh, of things? Well, it appears that the people of God are being oppressed. The Gentiles are raging against God's people. It's a language that's very similar to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and his Messiah? So uh, so as the people of God have always been persecuted by unbelievers, so the psalmist uh, understood in prophecy in Psalm 2 of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This will ultimately climax with the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of those who are in him will face the same opposition in this life. There will always be this contest and this struggle between the godly and the ungodly. And they will ask questions like, where is your God? Where is your God? He does not appear to exist to us. And uh, he uh, appears to be unable to rule and defend you. He appears to be unable to save you from my hand. And so this is the context. And it is in this context then that the psalmist begins by saying, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and because of of your truth. As the psalmist is facing this great struggle, and as he sees all of the nations gathering around him in order to persecute him, the first thing he says is, O Lord, act for the sake of the good of your own name. Glorify your own name by saving your people. This is this theme of praying that God would act in glorifying his own name is something that is extraordinarily common and is really the mark of godliness uh, in in prayer itself. Think of uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, where uh, in Ezekiel chapter 20, Ezekiel goes through a number of historical events, mostly related to the Exodus. Um, Ezekiel chapter 20, and he, he goes through a number of things that happen, and he points out a number of places in the Exodus where God's people sin against God. And he says over and over again, it's the constant refrain throughout, but I acted for the sake of my own name to save this people. For why should my name be desecrated? And then at the conclusion of, of Ezekiel chapter 20, he actually points forward to the coming new Exodus and says the same thing. I will act for the sake of my own name. I will act that my name might be glorified. Think of also how the way Moses prays after the golden calf incident. The thing he says is, Lord, Lord, don't destroy this people because then it will be said in the nations. It'll be said by all those people that you brought this people out of Egypt in order to kill them in the wilderness. And your name, what will you do for your great name? Your name will be desecrated among the Gentiles. Think of of Daniel as he's praying in Daniel chapter 9, praying about the return uh, of God's people after they were in exile. He says, Lord, don't, don't answer us because of our righteousness, but answer us because we, your people, are called by your name. You've put your name upon us. If you don't do good to us, it will not reflect well on you. This has always been the attitude of the godly in every age. O Lord, we see your greatness. We see that you are the God who is worthy of all praise. 
And it really bothers us more than anything else that your name is not being praised in this world as it ought to be praised. And God, God, this is the prayer that, that God listens to. He will act for the sake of his great name. He has said it over and over in the scriptures, and he will surely do it. Now, if you were to ask, well, how does God get glory? How does God get glory? He gets glory if he's the one who does it. If he's the one that saves in such a way that you can't point to anyone else or any other thing as to how this great act could have happened, then God gets the glory. This is something we see over and over again uh, in, in Isaiah chapters 40 through, through 55, that long section of Isaiah. Over and over again, he'll say, I am God. I am the only Savior. I'm the one who does it, and I will not share my glory with another. If God does it, then he is the one who gets all the glory. Now, there's a, a very famous example of this in, um, in the history of the church. Martin Luther, at the time of the Reformation, uh, said this very famously. He said, take myself as an example. I oppose indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. So from his perspective, he says, you know, all, all I did was just put this word out in front of people. And it was God then who acted. And it, because it was God who did it, therefore God gets the glory. And so as you think about this, as you see the church being opposed by the world in various ways, and as you think, you know, what, what's the godly response? First, the very first thing to say, even before the psalmist here goes into the, the reason why he's praying these things, the first thing we say is, O Lord, not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name be the glory. Get glory as the God who does everything. And so the psalmist uh, continues then, he, you know, he speaks of the, the nations that are raging against the people of God, and they're asking this question, where is your God? And the psalmist gives this answer, our God is in the heavens. That is where our God is. Now, one of the things about the idols of the nations is that they can be seen. Uh, they they were not invisible. They were they were in fact visible, and so this would have been a, a very um, uh, obvious question for the, the the nations to ask. You know, we we don't see your God. We can see all the other gods of all the other peoples in the world of all time, but we cannot see your God. Why is it that we can't see your God? Um, there is uh, uh, in the ancient church, the, the the Romans actually thought that the Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in. Uh, all of these gods, they rejected the pantheon. And they said, you know, you say you worship a god, but you reject all of these gods. And then the god that you say you worship can't even be seen. He's invisible. Is it really that you uh, worship a god? And this is really the way the world is. It's completely ignorant of the true god. It, it, it can't wrap its mind around the reality of god. That in reality, though they can't see god, god is transcendent and above all things. He's invisible and yet he rules over all things in heaven, and he does everything that he pleases. He is the God who is absolutely sovereign. And so as the psalmist then, with this set up in mind, with verses 1 through 3, he begins this, this long contrast between the gods of the nations and the one living and true God. And so this contrast is formally uh, begun in verses 4 through 8 with the description of the idols and those who follow them. Notice 
there is an immediate uh, contrast between the God who is in heaven in verse 3 and who does everything that he pleases. He is the God who can act and who does act in time and, and whatever he wants to do, he does. And then with, in verse 4, the idols who uh, not only can't do anything, but even they themselves are created by others. There is an immediate contrast. Our God is in the heavens. He does everything he wants and pleases. And yet the idols of the nations are the works of men's hands and they can't do anything. Now there are then in verses 5 through 7 we get this this uh, beautiful poetic description uh, of the idols. All of these idols they are made with all these human characteristics. They've got mouths, they've got uh, eyes, they've got ears, they've got hands, they've got feet, and yet they can't do anything. Whatever function the mouth, the eyes, the ears, the nose and whatever else is supposed to have, the idols that these people make can do none of those things. They, they, they can't use any of those things. They can't see, they can't, they can't uh, hear, they can't uh, smell, they can't touch or anything. And it shows that the idols are in fact dead. It's the, the main point that's being, uh, that's being made. Though they appear to be made in the representation of those who live, they are in fact dead. There's nothing that they can do for you. Uh, there are a number of places in the Bible where there is this, this, uh, uh, this um, critique of idolatry. There's actually a very interesting one as well in um, some of the literature that comes between uh, the Old and the New Testament in the Second Temple uh, period. And I just want to read this this uh, quote here from the Book of Wisdom, chapter 13. And it's, it's the same sort of thing where it's this contrast with the idols. He says, Then he makes prayer for his goods, for his wife and children, and is not ashamed to speak to that which has no life. For health, he calls upon that which is weak. For life, prays to that which is dead. For aid, humbly beseeches that which has least means to help. And for a good journey, he asks of that which cannot set a foot forward. And for gaining and getting and for good success of his hands, asks ability to do of him that is most unable to do anything. The idols of the nations can do nothing. There is another uh, place in the, uh, that's actually in the, in the scriptures in the book of Isaiah where there is a contrast with the, the idols of Babylon where um, in, Psalm, in uh, Isaiah chapter 46, uh, Isaiah says, you know, the, uh, the, the gods of Babylon, they actually have to be carried. You have to, you have to put them on a mule or a beast of burden. But God, he's the God that has borne you on his shoulders since the very beginning. God is the one who carries you. You don't have to carry him. It surely shows the weakness of these idols that they, they're so far from being able to help you that they themselves need all of your help. And again, the main point is this. They're dead. They have no life in them. They cannot help you at all. Now, you may hear this description of, of the idols and think, well, of course, that's obvious. Um, you know, but how, how does that apply to me today? There's there's very few people in this world who actually worship idols, so so the the argument could go. Um, it seems like the worship of physical idols seems to be uh, something that was a part of the ancient world's just naive outlook on things, and obviously they were uh, so far uh, from the truth, and the world is is wiser now. I uh, think of uh, like the claims of atheism, uh, where uh, they they won't say that there is uh, these gods who are um, in. Um, you know, idols that have been made by human hands. They just deny the existence of God uh, altogether. So what is, how does that relate to what this is, to this description of the idols? Well, 
It is very interesting that there are actually a large number of parallels between even atheism and the description uh, of uh, idolatry here. But not only that, uh, as atheism uh, begins to wane, it does appear to be waning in some ways, there is actually now an increase and a rise of uh, actual paganism is actually on the rise again uh, in this world. And the reason for that is atheism, um, as a, a theory on the existence of God, it only says something that's not true. You know, it says that God is not in existence. And so it leaves people just sort of wondering. It denies the existence of a transcendent God. Uh, but really, all of the pagans denied exactly that same thing. By uh, modern terminology, I think uh, every ancient pagan would still be an atheist. There is no transcendent God. All of the so-called gods of the pagan world really come from matter. In this way, they show a, a very strong connection with all atheism. In atheism, all things come from matter. Once you deny the existence of a transcendent God, the human mind will not stop there. It will then begin to describe uh, things in this world with characteristics of the gods. Uh, it can't do anything else because there's no other way to explain the way that things have gotten to be where they are. Uh, atheism doesn't give any theory on that sort of thing. And so like even evolution will use things like nature selects and chooses. Is nature really, does it really have the power to choose various things? You seem to be ascribing personal characteristics and even uh, the uh, a great power of creation to nature. It's the exact same thing that the ancient uh, pagans did. This is uh, go, grows into things like, um, you know, thinking Mother Nature has created us, that we owe our allegiance to Mother Nature. It's really the exact same worldview uh, as the pagans. And even outright paganism is on the rise. You have a rise of, of New Age religion, Eastern religions, even witchcraft. Um, people speak of, you know, the universe speaking to them, uh, that sort of thing. There's renewed interest in things like horoscopes, various superstitions, vague religious thinking. All of these things are exactly the same as what, as what the psalmist is speaking of here. There is really only two ways to think about the world. And this is just simply borne out everywhere. There can be some ways in which you can have a, a blended and mixed view of the world where you take parts of the true view and the parts of the false view. But ultimately, there are just two. And when you deny the existence of the transcendent God, whatever you put in place will be a dead idol. The, the world does not produce things on its own. Whether nature does not help you, a horoscope does not uh, predict your future or any of these things. It is looking to a dead idol which cannot help you. If you deny the existence of the transcendent God who makes all things, then uh, you will fall into the worldview that the psalmist is speaking of here. And even in, in many other ways, even those I've mentioned that there are some who give sort of a blended view of these things. Uh, this is what we see with the deterioration of true religion uh, in the course of history. It's what we saw with the Catholic Church, for instance, uh, when you have things like, um, you know, they, them including the worship of idols in, uh, in, their, uh, in their religion. There is, um, you know, even today there are shrines with various saints where people make pilgrimages to these shrines where people have set up uh, images of various people in uh, the history of Catholicism, who are said to be saints, and you can worship at that shrine, and that's supposedly uh, more special than if you were to stay in your own uh, in your own home. Or think of even transubstantiation, really set yourself up for the same sort of thing, where you have worship being given to that which is physical. You have uh, worshiping uh, of the, the bread rather than worshiping God himself. 
Uh, it, it's very common even today at the end of a, a Catholic service that they'll say something like, uh, O sacrament most holy, O sacrament divine, all praise and all thanksgiving be every moment thine. That is something that's said at the end of, of a Catholic Mass. There is worship being given to the sacrament itself, not to Christ who is shown in the sacrament, but to the actual sacrament. Now, of course, they will respond and say, well, we're worshiping God through the sacrament, though the words themselves are not uh, formulated that way. The, the words themselves are actually, is actually speaking of the worship of the sacrament itself. But even this, though, even this is not different from paganism. Pagans were not so, um, so lost in their thinking and mind. They didn't lack the sophistication so as to actually believe that uh, the idol was living. They really believed as well, just like Catholics in, in the transubstantiation and the worship of the sacrament, they believed that they were worshiping a god through the idol. Uh, they, they believed that there was a connection, that there wasn't a, an exact identity, but they believed that if you did certain things to the idol, then there would be some sort of connection that would be established between the idol and the actual deity, such that you could then render the worship to the idol and the deity would receive it. And so you see there, even here, it's, it's very, very similar in parallel uh, to paganism on that point. And so even as we, we see, you know, you, you think, you know, the, the world today doesn't worship through idols. There actually is uh, quite a bit of idol worship. There is really only two ways of thinking in the world. If you do not worship the true God, you will fall into the worship of idolatry. You will fall into exactly the kind of thing that the psalmist here is speaking of. And the psalmist says, those who make them, if you make idols, you will become like them. As the idols are dead, so you will die. You will become as dead as the dead idols which you follow. And we see this with all of the ways of thinking of this world. All of it leads to death. You think of evolution. Evolution eventually led to social Darwinism and uh, eugenics. Uh, it was this worldview that, uh, that um, made Hitler to think that killing all of those Jews was actually a good thing. Uh, evolution was leading to death. Abortion is an overflow of the same way of thinking. You know, if we, if we get rid of uh, the babies who are holding the species back, then uh, we will advance. Um, that it's, it's the same sort of thinking. Evolutionary thinking leads to death in everything. Uh, homosexuality leads to death. The homosexual ethic leads to all kinds of uh, diseases, AIDS, early death. Um, for a, a long time, it was known in this country. And doctors would say it. You know, if you want to live a short life, then you would engage in these kinds of practices because it is the way of death. Those who make them become like them. No matter what the world is doing to you, no matter what kind of upper hand it seems to have on you, if you go the way of the world, if you trust in their idols, you are going the way of death. Their idols are dead and all that they do leads to death. Those who make them become like them as do all who trust in them. And this is then immediately contrasted as the psalmist switches in verses uh, 9 through 18, particularly verses 9 to 11. There's uh, 9 to 11 is really the hinge of the whole psalm. All who trust in the idols become dead, just like their idols. But, O Israel, trust in the Lord. There is a call to trust in another. Don't trust in their idols. They, they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. But trust in the Lord. 
Trust in the Lord, for he is their help and their shield. Trust in the Lord, O house of Aaron, and you who fear the Lord. Trust in the Lord, for he is your ruler and your defender. Now, there is in verses 9 to 11, this, this threefold call to trust in the Lord is, again, in contrast to the worship of idols and trusting in them. And there are three uh, three groups that are, are singled out here, O Israel, O house of Aaron, and you who fear the Lord. Israel refers, uh, of course, to the Old Testament people. And the house of Aaron would be uh, the priests. If you were a son of Aaron, then you were a priest. Uh, if you were in the line of the firstborn, you were the high priest. Uh, and then in those who fear the Lord, then, it seems to be another group, which would mean that this is actually referring to even Gentiles who will, who will fear the Lord. This is something that will be picked up on again in Psalm 117. Um, Psalm 117 is particularly about the inclusion uh, of the Gentiles in all things. And so here the psalmist goes with all of these various groups uh, working its way out. Uh, he, he calls upon all of them to trust in the Lord rather than in the dead idols. And then uh, in verses 12 through 18, he gives the reasons why. Why are you to trust in the true God rather than trusting in idols? He says in verses 12 to 18, basically, the Lord is the God who blesses his people. God is the God who blesses people. The idols can do nothing for, for those who trust in them, but God can, in fact, do very much for those who trust in him. God is the God who, uh, as the living God, can actually bless his people with life. Now, in verses 12 through 14, uh, 12, sorry, 12 through 13, you have the same three groups which are mentioned, the house of Aaron, the house of, uh, the house of Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. So those who are called to, to trust in the Lord in verses 9 to 11 are then assured, when you trust in God, you'll be blessed. God will bless you. And it said in, at the beginning of verse 12, the reason is because God is mindful of us. He's mindful of us. It's a very similar language to the language that God uses uh, in the flood narrative. You know, remember at the, when the flood was at its peak, uh, there is this great transition where it says at the beginning of chapter 8 of Genesis, uh, God remembered Noah. And when he remembers his people then, he causes uh, the flood to succeed, and he begins uh, to bless his people and everything. The same thing is actually said with the Exodus as well, uh, that God remembered. God remembered his covenant with Noah. The cry of, the, of oppression uh, of God's people went up into heaven, and God saw it, and he remembered. He remembered the covenant which he made with his people, and he gave them their blessings. There is none who put their trust in God who will ever be put to shame. God is the God who blesses his people. Now, as the psalmist continues then in verses 14 to 18, there are a number of specific blessings that are, are given, that are said to be given to God's people. First, there is increase in verse uh, 14. Seems This is a reference to uh, the, the blessing that God had uh, given to the people, uh, to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. So here, this will, this will be fulfilled uh, in for those who trust in God. Uh, even dominion in, in verse 16 is given. Uh, this is, again, a, a reference to the, the, the promises which are given in Genesis chapter 1, that the, the people, of, uh, the people uh, of Adam and Eve and all those who come from them were to be fruitful, they were to multiply, and they were to rule and subdue the earth. They were given uh, kingship over the entire world. And this kingship is seen in those who trust in the Lord. God has given uh, this kind of rule to the children of mankind. He's building on the, the promises that were given in Genesis chapter 1. 
And there are a number of things that we could say about those things, uh, about those blessings that are, are given. But the one I think that is shows the strongest contrast with the idols of the nations. And the thing I want to spend a bit more time on is in verses 17 and 18, where we have this being written. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the fullest contrast with uh, what is said of idols and idol worshipers in verse 8. Those who make idols will become like them. They'll, they'll die. They, they, will, they, won't have, uh, they won't have mouths that can speak and eyes that can see. But, uh, and, God, and the psalmist says here, those who, the, uh, those who go down to the grave cannot worship God. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so even as uh, the psalmist is saying, if you worship idols, you will die. God does not have worshipers who are dead. And therefore, how do you know that you will live on the last day? God must have living worshipers. God must have living worshipers. As all those who trust in idols will die, so all of those who trust in the true God will live. He is the God of life, and he will always have true worshipers who are alive. And this then becomes uh, a very, very clear passage in the Old Testament regarding the resurrection of the dead. In the context, it's even, you know, it, it becomes an even uh, 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 a more emphatic meaning of resurrection of the dead as it's contrasted again with the dead idols. Uh, there are many who will look at the Old Testament, though they will deny the reality of the resurrection of the dead um, in the Old Testament. They'll say, you know, the Old Testament doesn't really teach anything about uh, the afterlife, so to speak. And in some ways, that's right. I mean, the, the, the Bible doesn't teach, especially the Old Testament, doesn't really teach so much about what we would call the afterlife. It's not because the Old Testament doesn't, isn't concerned about that sort of thing, but it's because rather than teaching um, so much about us being disembodied spirits with God, the Old Testament, as in the New, is really primarily concerned with the resurrection of the dead. And this is something that is taught very, very clearly in the scriptures. The hope that is put before the people of God is not being a disembodied spirit in heaven, but is being alive on the earth, worshiping God. And this is something that is very clearly seen in the Bible. There are a number of ways in which we've seen this as we were going through the book of Genesis earlier. Even going all the way back to that very first promise, again, Genesis 3.15, the, the, it was death that came into the world through the fall. And God said, when you eat the fruit of this tree, you'll die. And then he curses the people of God and says, you'll return to dust. And yet on the basis of the one promise in Genesis 3.15, Adam calls his wife the mother of all the living, the mother of all the living. There is very clearly an understanding that he was going to live because of the work of this one who had crushed the head of the serpent. We looked at, again, with Genesis chapter 5 as well, the same sort of thing. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And yet Enoch, who walks with God, lives. He does not ever see death. And so on the basis of these things, Job then could say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh, I will see God. In my flesh, I will see him, and not another. I will live at the end with God. Think of Psalm 16, verse 10. God will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let his Holy One see corruption. Sheol means the grave. God will not abandon me to the grave. He will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Think of uh, Psalm seventeen fifteen. after speaking of uh, the, the wicked and the way that they will pass away. I yet will be satisfied with your likeness at 
the end. Or think of Psalm 23. After the psalmist goes through the valley of the shadow of death, I will dwell in your house forever. Not for the rest of my life, but actually forever. Psalm 27, verse 13. I know that I will see God in the land of the living. Psalm 49, verse 15. This one's even uh, very emphatic as well. There's a comparison between God who redeems his people from all of the powers of the grave. Seems to imply resurrection. And then compares that to the wicked who die. The wicked die, but God redeems his people from the power of the grave. Think of Psalm 73, uh, verse 24. The psalmist is wondering about why the, the, why the wicked prosper in this life. And then he comes into the sanctuary. He discerns their end. He says, afterwards, after you lead me and guide me through this life, then you will receive me to glory. He believes he will be alive with God. Think of other places, Isaiah chapter 25, verses 7 and 8. God will uh, remove the veil, the covering, which is over all people, which is death itself. He will remove, he will swallow up death forever. Isaiah 26, verse 19. The dead, your dead will rise. They, those who sleep will come uh, awake. Think of Ezekiel 37, where salvation is described in very uh, picturesque terms uh, as the, the valley of the dry bones. Uh, the bones come to life. Salvation is resurrection. Or think of Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which is probably considered the, the clearest passage about resurrection in the entire Old Testament. Some will be resurrected to life and others will be resurrected to death. Now, I'm not saying that these things are exactly as clear as in the New Testament. But it is very clear. It is, it is something that was held out to the people of God. That there, there really was. That the people of God were looking for the resurrection of the dead. Now, even, even this, I, the reason I didn't uh, add, add to the number of examples was just because I knew it would take a long time to get through them all. Uh, but the Old Testament taught very, very clearly that the people of God who trusted in God would live. They serve a living God, and therefore, on the last day, they will live. And so this is the bottom line. Again, the entire psalm hinges on verses 9 to 11. Trust in God. Trust in God. No matter what it is that the world is doing, no matter how it appears that they appear to be winning, no matter how dire the situation is, trust in God. Do not give in to the world. All that they are doing will lead only to death. You could then ask the question of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it gain a man if he gains, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his, his soul? Stay faithful. You will receive the crown of life in the end. Think of what Moses did with the people when they were on the edge of the promised land. I set before you today life and death. And brothers and sisters, this is what I set before you today. Life and death. Choose life. Choose life in the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself even now is the living one who is raised from the dead. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a wonderful thing it is that we were made living, we were made alive in you, and even though we fell into sin and are now uh, bound by death in some ways, Lord, you are yet the living God, and all who trust in you will yet live. Lord, we are so thankful for the, this promise that you are not the God of the dead, but of the living. How true the Lord Jesus Christ was when he said those words, and how sweetly they comfort our souls. 
Lord, you are the God of the dead, uh, God of the living and not the dead. You will redeem us from the power of the grave. You will receive us to glory and we will be with you forever. How, Lord, we do pray that you would, would help us to trust in you in this life, that you would give us the, the grace and the strength to stand firmly on your word, that we would not be turned away from it in the slightest, but, Lord, that we would continue on, uh, even be willing to pick up our cross as the Lord Jesus Christ did, that we might gain eternal life in the end with him. We do pray all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.